Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there. Welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. I hope you're enjoying your fall. Fall has historically been a challenging time for me. I had a history of depression. I have a history of depression. I struggled for years with acute depression. And fall was the time that it was getting intensified. So uh, now, even right now, although I don't have depression, I make sure that I'm planning things, I'm having things in place so I can make my fall season more exciting. One of those, those things that I'm doing is I'm going to New York City with one of my therapist girlfriend we're attending Esther Perel's training if you don't know her she's a sex therapist she's a relationship therapist as well and she published a number of different interesting books on infidelity and how what can you do to keep the relationship alive so I'm going on the weekend of uh, November 8th and 9th I'll, I'll definitely let you know what I learned in the conference. Meanwhile, you can follow me on my social media and Instagram when I'm taking a trip. I'm always updating my story. So you can join me on the trip by following my Instagram account. My Instagram is at oasis to care uh, You can find the link in the show notes. So today we're going to talk about, is it possible for people to have fulfilling, connecting sex after they acquired physical disability. Many times people have this misconception that in order for individuals to have good sex life, it requires them for them to have able body. And let's face it, many people with able body also, they have a non-existent sex life. But our guest today is someone that's passionate about teaching tools and strategies that people can use to keep passion alive and in the relationship after they acquired physical disability. What can you do to continue having hot sex? So I'm very excited about this conversation. Our guest today is Jose Tapia Facilier Jr. He's currently a third-year doctoral student in counseling education and supervision at the University of North Texas. Jose's research is focused on clinical interventions for interabled couples in couples and sex therapy. Specifically, Jose focuses on the adjustment process after one partner acquires a disability. Jose provides individual couples play and family therapy with a special focus in working with disabled people in three languages, English, Spanish, and American Sign Language at a private practice. You can check out the link to private practice in the show notes. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Jose. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to have Jose Tapia Fusile on our show today. Jose, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you for having me. You know, I, guys, we, we practiced the last name for a good <laughs> 20 seconds. And I, <laughs> I got it wrong. Was it close enough? Yes, absolutely. 
Wonderful to have you here. I've been looking for an expert to come talk to us about how can people have wonderful sexual experiences when they're struggling with physical disabilities. And unfortunately, there are not that many resources out there. And I was so excited to discover that that was one of your areas of specialty. Yes, no, I agree. And that's definitely kind of my line of research and what I'm focusing on in my doctoral program. My background's in rehabilitation counseling, so I was trained to work with people with disabilities. And then that kind of just grew and spread into working with couples and families. And now that's what I focus on mostly. So, yeah. That's fantastic because it's such a specialty that I feel that it's wonderful to have people who have done research in this area and also do clinical work. So, when people think about disability, they don't necessarily don't think about people's sexuality. So, one of the first thoughts that I have that I often hear from my colleague is, is it possible to have fulfilling sex life after someone getting a physical disability? Absolutely. I think one of the powerful things that I've been able to see is just the changes that can occur when a space is provided to someone who's acquired a disability in having conversations about this. Because many times when they enter the medical system, they're dealing with multiple systems at a time, multiple doctors, depending on the type of uh, disability acquired. And then what happens is they're given medication, they're given all this treatment, therapies, and very few individuals hardly ever ask, how, is your, how, are, how are you doing with your sexuality? Are you able to express your sexuality the way you want to? Hardly ever do I hear those conversations happen with these individuals. So it's been, it, it, when that happens, it's, it's amazing kind of just the feeling of, oh, wow, someone actually cares and notices mm-hmm. and wants to talk about it. Because I think our society, unfortunately, has painted people with disabilities as uh, non-sexual beings and, you know, they don't desire sex. And even when we look at like just uh, sex education, they rarely ever include images of people with disabilities or conversations around, around that. So families also, I think, don't have a good understanding of what that looks like, even partners. Absolutely. And I, and I love that you mentioned like when space provided, because that's my experience as well with my clients, that when people acquire this disability, the focus on rehabilitation and gaining the, some abilities that they had and medical system, usually they don't focus on asking about one's sexual health and sexual well-being. And even other therapists, they're not necessarily comfortable talking about it or they don't think that's a priority in the light of what one person is person's ex- experiencing. Right. And I feel that at times people even feel uncomfortable thinking about someone who has a disability as a sexual being, which is very frustrating. Yes, I'm nodding my head as you talked the whole time because um, <laughs> I completely agree with that. And, you know, I think as therapists, whether you focus on sex therapy or you just focus on couples therapy, whatever the modality is or just individual work, I think it's important for us to acknowledge our own internal biases related to this population. We're, we're, you know, we're bred into a system where ableism is, is our focus. We, the medical model says either you're fixed or you're broken. And so we, we tend to come from that lens of people with disabilities don't get the same type of treatment. They're not viewed in the same way. They're represented less in media. Although I will say like recently, you know, in the last few years, it's increased, but Historically, it hasn't been that way. So I think it's definitely harder for therapists to kind of 
explore them, explore the that if they're so uncomfortable with it. Absolutely. And with us asking clients about their sexual health, sometimes we're giving them permission to examine that aspects of their, their life. So my understanding is your area of focus is mostly around acquired physical disabilities. So tell us, does having a physical disability change one's sexuality? So no, it does not, at least in my experience. What shifts is maybe the ways that they express it in, in regard to maybe the amount in terms of time. It just, it just depends. A lot of things that kind of interfere with some of those ways that people express their sexuality with the disability is mainly some part due medication and some of it psychological, you know, when Again, when we're when we're systemically viewed as, or when we when the system tells us we we ha- we we are better when we don't have a disability, then those internalized messages impact their view of self. So that can also diminish their their desire to express their sexuality with themselves or with their partner out of just shame and and guilt for having a disability. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that, uh, that it doesn't necessarily change human as, as a sexual being. It just changes people's kind of ability and what they can do. And there are the, there's this world of opportunity when it comes to sexuality that I feel people are kind of like narrowing it down, uh, which kind of makes it hard when someone is not able to do a certain act or as frequently or mm-hmm. in the same degree. But I, I love that you mentioned that there is, there's not necessarily changes in ones being able to be a sexual being. Tell us a little bit about your research. What was the research that you've done in this area? So right now I'm working on two projects. I'm doing a qualitative case study mm-hmm. looking at enabled couples. I use the term enabled that came from Ben Matlin's book. He, he interviewed a bunch of couples in the United States where one partner had a disability. That, that term doesn't capture all couples, but I use it in, in research from a research lens as just identifying one partner as having a disability and one partner as being non-disabled. So one of the things I'm investigating is what, because the research right now, there was one great study that was done in, in the UK in the, in the 80s. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I know. A long time ago. And, and it's interesting because even like looking at, looking at that, it's so, it's so relevant and still it still happens. A lot of those narratives that were being shared. So one of the things I'm exploring is, is what their life is like after relationship-wise and the bonds that they had before and the bonds they have now. And then also how they experience each each other's sexuality. Mm-hmm. And and that's one. And then the second one, I'm trying to do a an intervention-based study where I can look at creating more strong bonds with each other, emotional bonds with each other after acquiring a disability. And part of that is because what happens is, and I see this time and time again, and it's and honestly, at many times, it's so sad to see because I care about the people I work with. And, you know, it oftentimes, in, at least in a, a few occasions, when the bonds are not able to be reestablished, then there's separation. And not necessarily separation as in literally I'm separating from you, but just that relational connection is is drifting further and further apart to where I've seen just some of these, the partners who are non-disabled kind of step out of relationship and have an affair. Mm-hmm. And their partner who is trying to recover is doing everything they can. But, you know, there's one thing of what your mind and body and all of those things can, there's a limit to how much they can recover based on the type of disability that was acquired. So that's kind of, that. those experiences have fueled my research and wanting to understand 
how can we as couples and sex therapists step in? Mm-hmm. And at what point would it be beneficial for, th- for treatment, for therapy to reestablish these connections, to ensure that they have a, a great relationship, an amazing one, whatever that looks like, more so than if we, were, if we never intervened? Wonderful research area. And I'm glad that you're doing this work because it seems like it's long overdue. <laughs> the last one was done in 80s. I understand that this is something that you're developing and like currently working on in the area of the research. But tell us, is it possible? And for, and I really like the term inner, what was it? Inner able couple. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. I, I, I like the reframing. So tell us about how common it is that people are able to restore those bonds and have good relationship mm-hmm. and specifically good sexual relationship. Because I personally see in my practice that people are, many of my clients, they remain together after one partner acquired this disability, but the roles become like one person become a caregiver and the other person who struggles with this changes sometimes they want to do sex just because to please their partner because they think the partner needs it. So I'm kind of curious about, is it possible to restore it? And how how often do you see that? So it absolutely is. And but yes, what you mentioned is so crucial. When roles are taken on that have never been taken on before, like a caregiver, Mm -hmm. I've encountered some where the the partner is having to, the non-disabled partner is having to help their other partner with their bowel and bladder, Mm -hmm. maybe change their depends and help them shower. So it truly changes how they view each other on some level, not completely because they obviously care for that and for their partner. But when it comes to their their sexual connection, more difficult when the non-disabled partner is having to exert so much energy and trying to manage everything. Because if we're thinking of children too, added to that, it just complicates the the amount of time they truly have to connect. And then also, how does a part, how does a non-disabled partner view, view disability? What are, their th- what are their thoughts and beliefs about disability? Because that plays a role into how they view their partner. And then how does a partner also view th- themselves with the disability? Because yes, it's very much so of, I'm going to have sex with my partner because, with my non-disabled partner, because I want to make sure that they, f- they feel cared about, they feel loved, and that, that's we're still good there mm-hmm. and then the other partner at times a non-disabled partner doesn't want to engage and some of that can be just the roles they've taken on some of that can be i don't want to harm that's the biggest mm-hmm. one if i've seen i don't want to harm my partner mm-hmm. in this process i don't want them to feel more pain i don't want them to exert themselves to the point where they're wiped out the next day or a few days and they need more help so it's it is, a, it is a balance, but one of the things that I think is so powerful is the idea that we talk about it, the idea that we address it head on and say, hey, this is something that's going on. Let's, let's, bring the, let's discuss what this looks like. Because again, when no one's having these conversations, they're having to figure this out on their own. Mm-hmm. That's so hard. That is so hard for them to do that. And when it comes to them reaching out for resources, we have to think if they've just been thrown into this new world, they're dealing with a lot. They're trying to balance a lot. They're grieving their relationship with each other and how different that is. They're grieving their bodies, how different that is. And it's just, there's so much happening, so many layers to it. So the idea that if, if if a sex therapist can literally open the door and say, 
we needed to, we, I want to create space for this, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think building a line for me, the biggest thing is building alliance with both partners individually throughout the process is crucial and essential because what oftentimes what is found and one of the things that I'm doing in my own uh, research is I'm doing qualitative interviews together, but also separate because oftentimes what happens is when you, when you have partners together, you're going to miss your certain things will not be discussed out of fear of heart, hurting their partner, not wanting to, you know, hurt their feelings or, you know, be open in a vulnerable way out of fear of what their other partner might think. So having that individual time creates the creates space for each each of the partners to share their fears, their some of their insecurities that have come as a result of acquiring a disability. And with that, you are going to be able to create those those types of bonds again, providing very strategic and very intentional ways of engaging, like by touch, sexually, all of those things is a process and it takes steps to get there. Because one of the things is the partner who acquired a disability, they might have a new body. Mm-hmm. They might have, have the same body that they had before, before their disability. And what does that mean? And how do they, how do they, how do they view their body? before and after acquiring a disability. I think that's so crucial in a part that sometimes is missed. Um, even in literature, when I, when I read about kind of the, some of the ways that they gather data, they miss the part where it's, well, how did they view their body before? And how do they view it now? Because that's, a, again, how we internalize just societal messages and how we, how we view ourselves prior to and after is important to help conceptualize what's happening in front of you so that you can best tailor interventions for sexual intimacy and connection again. Such an interesting kind of a way of looking at it. Tell us about, is it better or worse when people have a better relationship with their bodies and self-image prior to getting the disability? So it's interesting. That is unclear. I am, <laughs> it, is, it is a yes and no. It's so ambiguous. Mm-hmm. One of the things, though, that I found is there was this qualitative study done uh, with lesbian couples where one partner had acquired a disability. And when they did like a, like a meta-analysis of other research, one of the things that they found was queer couples are able to adapt better to their bodies in terms of viewing of their bodies than uh, straight couples. And I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. But again, that's, you know, they, they were very clear in, lim- in making sure it wasn't generalizable to everyone. But that was just something that they found in their study. And I thought that was interesting so I think it depends on one on the population, like what kind of, are they a straight couple? Are they LGBTQ couple? And how, how those things also play a role. Because I think one of the things we have to consider always is intersectionality and mm-hmm. all those layers, that, all those identities that they embody before and after acquiring a disability. Because essentially you're adding a disability identity to that when, you know, they might have never had an experience. So so yeah, that, that adds more layers to it. And it's hard to, I don't know, I want to answer your question with certainty, but it's it's one of those things and that people say in our field, it's like, it depends, you know. <laughs> well, and that is so true that especially even in the areas that they've been very well researched, we have that experience that people are, like the research is not necessarily very clear in the realm of sexuality. The research is just 
almost non-existent. And that's why we're so grateful you're doing the work. And it's, it makes sense that it might not be something that could be generalized to everyone. But that's a very interesting finding. I guess the other piece that I was kind of curious about is like monogamous couples versus non-monogamous couples mm-hmm. are different kind of structures. For example, I would imagine I never had a client with disability in a polyamorous situation, like it's a polyamorous dynamic. But I think the dynamics would be different. Do you, do you study those relationship dynamics as well? So that is something I, I will branch out to in, in the future once I have a solid foundation of what it looks like for two. But some of the things that, that come to my mind and just how, and how that plays a role is that creates, it can create more conversations about when we think of roles and who's taking on those roles. It provides an opportunity to really explore what it means to have, relation, to have more than one relationship, who provides what mm-hmm. in terms of those, those sexual needs, but also just other needs, other things that might be needed um, for care. And then also some of the things that can also happen is they have an attendant. They have someone who takes care of everything where the partners that they have don't have to worry about that. Mm-hmm. And, but that's also very, you know, depends on mm-hmm. their finances, how, how they manage insurance, all those other complicated mm-hmm. areas. And I think that just that opens up the doors for more conversations about who provides what mm-hmm. and to what extent and what kind of additional conversations about boundaries and roles can be set up to ensure that the person with that the a disabled partner is able to still have a fulfilling sexual experience and connection with with their partners. Mm-hmm. And also, I think if their finances and the resources are limited, when you have multiple people that they can offer a hand and provide care, that can make it easier for, for the system. But again, I haven't done a study on that. I didn't have the clients on that population specifically with disability. So that would be interesting. And I'm glad that you're thinking about it for future research. So do you have any sex tips for couples that they are new to these situations yes. that they want to have right, re- restart their sexual life with their partner? Yes, absolutely. Well, I think, so one of the things that come up for me first, and we've kind of mentioned this is, it is important, it is truly crucial for us to be self-aware of what it, how we are impacted by a client who has a physical disability. Mm-hmm. Now that, to, that for me is not invisible. It is someone who is coming in either with a mobility aid or with some quote-unquote quantifier in terms of, oh, this person moves differently or maybe appears differently, and how, do we, how are we impacted by that? Mm-hmm. What are our reactions? How do we feel about it? Does that, how, do, how is that coming in? Because I think we can make so many assumptions, and I think this happens so much to the disability community. People make so many assumptions of what they're capable of doing, what they how they sh- live their lives, how should they live their lives, etc. So I think it is really important for the therapist to take a stance of, okay, let me explore this with myself so that I understand how I impact this, this relationship. Mm-hmm. For me, that's the first thing. I think it's always, it's always like the first step. And then the second step is one of the things that couples do not talk about and what I have, what I have read and what I have seen is what we are, what they can do. Sometimes partner, some, sometimes the non-disabled partner will overdo, overstep and want to take care of everything and just make the partner's life, disabled partner's life easier. But a lot of times the disabled partner doesn't have autonomy and many of the things that they're fully capable of doing might not want to push it because then that creates frustration, all of those things. So I think 
in developing relationship, it's 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 crucial to understand what the partners, what the disabled partner is capable of doing. Mm-hmm. And that requires not making assumptions of what they're capable of doing by how they appear. And then from there, for me, the what follows next is what is the partner's relationship with their disability? Uh, the disabled partner's relationship with their disability. Do they accept it? Do they reject it? How far, how much time has passed since they've acquired it? Because that will tell you a lot about the grief process in terms of where they where they are, how they respond to it, their nonverbals, everything that is involved in that conversation will help you will help the therapist better understand. Okay, I'm noticing they're not ha- they do not speak well about you know what has what has happened. Mm-hmm. That is going to interfere with what you provide or how much you provide, because a lot of times the, some of these couples are so overwhelmed with everything that they're having to do that sometimes our own work that we want to do with them can further derail them or cause more stress and frustration. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, for me, what I want to know is, I want to know that whatever I provide them, that they, it can, that they will be successful in doing it. Mm-hmm. And successful to the extent of just doing it. If, it right. if there's complications, sure, let's talk about it, let's process it, but not overwhelming them with stuff and things to do with each other. And then the next thing for me, it's a, a natural thing I would have each part of what the disabled partner do is body mapping. Mm-hmm. I want them to be in front of a mirror. I want them to b- be naked in front of a mirror and just map their bodies. What do they notice differently from before? Are there any scars? Are there any, what is different? How does it look to them? What are their thoughts around it? What's coming up for them? Because again, this all goes to when someone acquires a disability and if they are in a, in a place where they reject their disability, mm-hmm. they're less likely to spend time looking at themselves and seeing themselves as a sexual being or someone who can be sexualized by their partner. So it's, it's kind of breaking those things down. We have to, and one of those things too, it's how they internalize it. We need to explore that, understand that. So that way they are better able to embrace themselves so their partner can embrace them. I was wondering that it's such a wonderful kind of like path that you have as far as exploring these things with clients. And I, lo- I just want to say, I love the body mapping for everyone. <laughs> I feel people are like, they're not comfortable with their bodies and they have so many, so much different, so many different emotions when it comes to it. And I would imagine that would be a very helpful tool for, especially for someone who had some changes in their physical ability. And as a side, I was wondering then if you know, like if people coming back with talking about the challenges they have with their body is that something they can work it out in the couples therapy do you, that's, is that something that you feel like people are able to address and get resolution around that so i so not if i'm going to if i'm going to request that a partner does body mapping i'm going to have them come back individual mm-hmm. i'm going to have them come back to, to just see me not with their partner mm-hmm. mainly to process the encounter what was it like to encounter yourself in a mirror mm-hmm. and to see yourself mm-hmm. and to explore that and usually that creates a lot of, you know, there's a lot of emotions that come up with it mm-hmm. because sometimes what happens too is there's this, well, depending on the medication, depending on how much they've been in recovery, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of body changes in size as well. Mm-hmm. So if that has occurred too, like, you know, just really allowing space to explore that because at the end of the day, and I want to I wanna reiterate this, not many people give them the space to talk about this. Mm-hmm. So giving them that space, I mean, for me, if more people are doing that, um, that, is, that is what needs to be happening. So after that, then for me, I would, put it, I would allow them to decide what they would like to share with their partner mm-hmm. in terms of the experience. And that I would have them do at home. 
And then when they would come back, it'd be exploring, okay, well, where are they at sexually at this point? How often are they connecting? What type of connection? Mm-hmm. And the extent of the change. And then based on that, I would, I would really want to understand what is the non-disabled partner? What are their, what are, what is the stuff going on inside of them that is, that might be impacting their just ability to take that next step and connect out of fear or out of just worry or maybe seeing their partner as not, as not sexual anymore. You know, that is a reality that can happen. And a lot of times too, depending, a lot of people who I've worked with had, uh, so I worked with people who had brain injuries and a lot of time they had spasticity in their limbs. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, I mean, their half of their body would be, would not be able to move. It'd be very stiff. So some of the positions that they could get in are very limited. So a lot of the ways that I work with this population, and I think everyone should be working with any of everybody, is from an integrated care model. And the reason why that is so crucial with this population is our voice matters. And they, other providers need to know what's going on with this couple, needs to know what's going on for them and how they can support them. And I worked with a lot of physical and occupational therapists, and, I would, and they do all the testing. They're, they're the ones that have all the information of how much they can move, to what extent, their heart rate, all of those things that are necessary to understand, okay, what, how much can we really expect this individual at this current time? Because so much changes in the human body with recovery. But at that specific time, you know, where are they at and how can we involve the, obviously with consent from the couple, mm-hmm. how much can we involve the physical therapist and occupational therapist to explore some of these movements, some of these positions that they might want to try mm-hmm. that might not have been a position they particularly enjoyed doing before, but maybe it's something they can explore now and what that means. And I think the more people, again, who normalize it and provide the space, meaning other providers, the easier it is for both for, for both partners to partake in that experience. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for sh- sharing your experiences and also talking and highlighting the importance of integrative care. First of all, I think as a clinician, we can have a central role in educating other providers about how sexuality is an important part of clients and couples' life and also giving them opportunity to kind of give us feedback and give couples feedback. So I, I'm so glad that it seems like you're not only connecting with other providers, you're educating them as well. Absolutely. And I think that's crucial. So when we understand that, we get, again, it, that it helps us do our job better. Because mm-hmm. then we're not trying to just provide or, or help them do things that they're not ready to do or their bodies are not ready to do. Mm-hmm. So then we're not setting them up to fail. And then we're not setting them up to re-experience limitations in their own bodies or just frustration. And then that, you know, that just creates further disconnection. One of the other things I love to do, and not well, I've done it, yes, but I love to tell people to do is what's a non-demand sensate genital exploration. Mm-hmm. And that's done in the shower. Mm-hmm. So it's a, sen- it's a, a census shower, essentially. And what, what that involves is it's, it's nothing that's going to lead to any form of penetration. Mm-hmm. It is more so Let's both be naked in the shower. Let's explore with temperature, you know, if it's warm, if it's hot, etc. It is away from all things, TVs, devices, bedroom. You know, for one of the things that comes up for me many times is oftentimes their bedroom is no longer the space where they could intimately, intimately connect. That becomes a space where that is where their partner's cared for. 
that is where a lot of things happen when it, whether it's helping with bowel and bladder or changing or, you know, it just, the space has changed. Mm -hmm. So a way to kind of create a different space where they can just ex connect and explore each other is in the shower. And one of the reasons I like it, because it's private. No one's around, the door's closed, oh. kids are away, uh -huh. or knocking at the door, who knows. But it, <laughs> it, it allows them to just explore their genitals mm -hmm. with each other. And, and in that, the conversations can be, can be started in terms of, you know, what does this feel like for you? Is this something that, you're, that you like? And again, it doesn't have to lead to any form of erection or anything, but it's more of just, what is the experience like for you when you're doing this? Because mm -hmm. it's that idea, if, I'm, if we can get into a safe space where I can touch you and feel connected and not feel, I, don't, I hate to use this word, but to feel ugly, like I don't, you know, it's kind of moving past some of those things. Because right. you're forced to be in front of each other. You're forced to be in the space where you get to explore without judgment or negative thoughts that might come through. And if it does, that's a great thing to process in therapy. Mm -hmm. You know, these things were coming up as I was trying to touch my partner's genitals, my non-disabled partner's genitals, as they were touching mine, I was, mm -hmm. uh, I just was, just, you know, I wasn't feeling great or I felt so good. I, that hasn't happened in a long time where I just felt like I can connect. And it's just, it, it just brings up so much more in moving them to ne the next step. These, so for me, these are all like how we get started. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of things with this process is we get to understand, are there other things involved like vaginismus or other types of, I had a patient once who with her, she had hemiparesis on her left side and her half of her, the left side of her vagina was numb. Mm -hmm. She couldn't feel anything uh -huh. and it was tight. Uh -huh. The muscles in there were very tight. So it was, mm -hmm. sex was painful. Mm -hmm. So how do you navigate that? And really being able to explore some of those things. And some of the men who might experience erectile dysfunction due to this, who maybe don't want like mm -hmm. surgery or for like penile implant or something to assist and medication might not work. It's exploring other ways. So what kind of toys, what kind of sexual experiences can be created where you still get to feel that sense of in the, in the ways that you want to be and the ways that you can be at this time mm -hmm. and not feel like that can happen at all mm -hmm. because you can't, you can't have an erection and all of these things can happen. Well, how can we create it? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times what I find what, what, I've, what I find and what I've read is the non-disabled partner is really gets to re and re one reconnect, but also re-experience pleasure and sometimes pleasure in a way that they haven't before. Mm -hmm. Because again, if they weren't having these conversations before and they're having them after they've acquired a disability, well, then that opens up to a lot more exploration in general. Right, right. I love that. And I feel like most people, even people who are in able body, they haven't explored the potential that the body provides for experiencing pleasure and intimacy. And this can be opportunity for people to connect with other ways they can experience pleasure. And I love the idea of this non-demand touch, because at times when we know that this is a quote unquote foreplay and the intercourse is coming, if people have some past experiences that was negative, they are at, at a place of hypervigilance. So they're yeah. not able to truly connect with their body. So I love this intervention that you develop. I think that's, that's very smart. Did you, did you thought about it yourself? No, no, I don't want to take credit for that. <laughs> it's like, oh, <laughs> something that I came across and it just made so much sense. And for the population I, I, I work with, I'm like, well, this 
I, this makes a nat- this seems like a natural progression to mm. make those efforts to connect in a deeper way. And what happens too is, and I, I shared this in the, pre- so at the presentation at oh. ASEC, I shared this aspect and that came across in literature, not something that I've necessarily utilized, but sexual surrogates so that they are intimately involved in, well, hey, these are the positions that, that might be comfortable or let's try them, you know, and really just helping the couple. Because again, I, most, most of the time it is fear that is preventing them from being able to connect with each other mm. and for them to have intercourse because of there, there's fear on both sides. And I think that's something to know going in. So sexual surrogates can be an also a, di- a great addition to that process and helping them not only for the disabled partner, but the non-disabled partner, because then there's l- less pressure. And I, I see this more with straight couples where the non-disabled partner identifies as male. That can be more helpful because there, it, there's a lot more fear in, in just the, the woman's body, how much it has changed, not wanting to harm it, wanting it to be pleasurable, you know, the, all the expectations that we put around sex. Mm-hmm. And so sexual surrogates can really be helpful and instrumental in that process and can really be a great addition to what, what is already happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't it a movie about that? I think it was a very popular movie, right? The person with yes. a disability, and it was based on a true story. Yes. Yeah, wonderful. And again, I know that using surrogacy is a tricky situation for licensed people, but I, I, I see that it, this can be very beneficial, especially when people are trying to navigate these new territories. I love your passion, and it's fantastic that you're doing this work. So if our listeners want to get a hold of your research, your information, where would be the best place? So right now they can contact me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my student email. I work at a private practice, but as a doc student, all my, all, everything research, everything, everything connect, everything that I'm currently working on, it would be through there. It is Jose Tapia, so J O S E T A P I A at my M Y dot U N T dot E D U. Excellent, excellent. So, uh, guys, you can find it in the show notes if you didn't get a chance to write it down. Jose, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was lovely to have you. And thank you so much for doing this work. Thank you. No, I, I appreciate being here. And it, hopefully everyone can, you know, we can further explore ourselves and how we view disability and how we work with people with disabilities and especially in sex therapy. Yes, that's and just like <laughs> Great. I, I, need, I need people to, to explore them. I need people to explore it. I need them. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I hope you found our conversation helpful. I certainly learned a lot about some of the techniques and intervention that Jose is using to uh, help people to continue having fulfilling sex life even after they experienced a physical injury or acquired physical disability. At the end, I wanted to remind you guys that I'm, I'm continuing to post weekly blog in my, in my website. And also I, in my newsletter, I put in all the interviews that I've been, I've been doing with other people in the field and the podcast I've been featured on and the different articles that I contributed to. So if you wanted to stay connected, make sure you're signing up for a newsletter at sexologypodcast.com. I'll make sure that you guys get the newsletter. Don't worry, I'm not going to bombard you with emails every week because I hate getting spam emails. So I'll make sure the quality of the content is great. So it would worth you signing up. Anyhow, thank you so much for listening. I love you guys for connecting with me. I love you guys for sending me an email. And I'm looking forward to get all of your questions and feedback. And I'll talk to you next week.
Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.